Acts chapter 19 is where we are. Studying the book of Acts together, we picked up this fall, last week actually, and uh, we will begin, or we will see again today that we are reminded that the book of Acts is the story of what Jesus Christ continues to do through the power of His Spirit, Spirit-empowered mission, through the church, through the people of the living God. The human author is Luke, the great physician, wrote the gospel according to Luke as volume 1, the book of Acts, volume 2, one book, two volume, Luke, Acts. We call it the Spirit-empowered mission. We hear the word a lot around here about mission. God's on a mission. Seek and save the lost. Jesus made it very clear. He gave his life as a ransom for many. When we talk about the mission in the church, we mean we are, we are part of that mission. The, the Same with Acts, the, the witnessing and the retelling of the story. Jesus Christ became a man, lived the perfect life, died in atonement, death in our place, taking the wrath of God on himself, buried three days, rose victorious over sin, death, and hell, gave multiple proofs to hundreds of people, ascended to the Father, someday will return. He is Savior and substitute. Last week, we were, we were continuing on this theme of spirit-empowered mission, and we saw in chapter 18, Paul concluded his second missionary journey. And began, we saw a little bit of that at the end of 18, and began a little bit concluding his, his third missionary journey. That will be the end as, as far as missionary journeys are concerned. It's then when Paul goes in his final journey onto Rome where he will be killed for the faith. Remember, we said that Paul's missionary journeys are defined um, from when he leaves and returns to the church in Antioch. Just a quick, just quickly here. Okay, Jerusalem down here, Antioch up here. They're ascending church. This is the second trip. Paul has gone through Asia Minor into Europe. He's back in, he's in Corinth. He stops by Ephesus. Say that carefully. And then shoots down to uh, Caesarea, up to Jerusalem, back to Antioch. Trip number two gives report to the Antioch church uh, of what's going on. And then he begins his third trip. And again, beginning in Antioch. Whoops, sorry, hit the wrong button. Come on now. Okay. His third trip, he's going to go east, excuse me, west through Asia Minor. He'll stop here at Ephesus, which we will see today. So this is like, I think, 1,500 miles. Oh, no. I, I, yeah, from here across, up and across, from down in Jerusalem, it's like, you know, it's not, it, it's a quite a trip. So Paul's beginning, we'll see here in Ephesus that he's, he's on his third trip. And he stops at Ephesus, where he had stopped previously during his second trip, but only for a short season. He says, I'll be back. I'll be back. If God wills, I'll be back. Last week we saw while he was in Ephesus that we met Apollos. He's the member of, of the gospel team, God's, God's, God's squad of, of the team that God has been putting together in Acts 18. Uh, Luke tells us that this man Apollos was an Egyptian. He was a Christ follower. He was fervent in spirit. He understood the things of the Lord. Um, he taught accurately, but there was something missing. He was under the impression or the only knowing really about the baptism of John the Baptist. We'll see that come into play today. I think Luke is writing this story. In, in eight, remember, 18 and 19, just so you know, um, the chapter breaks were put in by man hundreds of years later after the scripture was written. 
So it's one story, and I think Luke is, Luke is talking about Apollos, who only knew of the baptism of John in 18, and then in 19, he talks about disciples, which we'll read about in a minute, who only knew about the baptism of John, obviously connecting the stories together. If you remember, it was Priscilla and Aquila, who was with Paul doing tent making in uh, Corinth, who went on to Ephesus, who taught Apollos properly the things about God more accurately. And when we get to chapter 19, as we look at today, Apollos is back in Corinth. He had left Ephesus. He's back in Corinth. Paul was there for about 18 months. And now Paul's in Ephesus starting his third trip. And he's there for three years. The first really time that, well, you saw at the end of the second journey and the beginning of the third, where Paul is staying for long periods of time. Usually, boom, he's in a city. He preaches the gospel. People come to faith. They beat the dog snot out of him. And down he goes to another city. That's the way it's been working for now. And you almost wonder if Paul's going, all right, you know, I got I to really, I mean, as far as ministry is concerned, people are coming to faith, but now I need to spend more time with them. Sometimes we just need to spend more time with folks. And Paul's going back, and you know what, I'm going to stay, I'm not going to stay three months, I'm going to stay 18 months in Corinth. Church is exploding, it's flourishing. And now in Ephesus, which we'll see today, Ephesus, we will see that, you know, the, the, the gospel is going powerfully there. In fact, the, the city in this, this stop here at Ephesus, has many twists and turns. I think Luke is trying to say, look, when, when the gospel comes, when, when the reality of, of Jesus Christ comes to a city, it, it comes in a multifaceted way. Sometimes I think we want it done our way, the way we always learned it, the way we always saw it take root in people's lives, and God is saying, no, I'm sovereign, you're not. I will do what I want. You get out of the way, really. And, and we see this multifaceted way in which the gospel comes to Ephesus, and it came through the synagogue, which you read about. It came through a, a failed exorcist attempt. It comes, the gospel comes through a rented hall that Paul rents. It comes through a mob that's trying to beat up and beat down the disciples. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a wild story, really. It's actually a preacher's nightmare, because I've got to get all that in in one sermon. But that's what we're going to try to do. And we'll, we'll, we'll sum up some of it, rather get it all. But here's the outline for you. Um, we're going to look at it in the three headings, three points. One is the presence of God. Uh, verses 1 through 7, a bit strange. We're going to talk about baptism today, baptism of the Holy Spirit, how it fits in the story of Acts, and then in the book of Acts, and then in the rest of Scripture. It's important to do that. We'll talk about that, the presence of God in, in the baptism. Number two, the power of God. Verses 11 through 20, Reveal the reality of, of, of evil spirits, its power, and it's really its emptiness, Paul points to. In, in number three, there's the longest section, 21 through 41. Um, in this chapter, it's all about idolatry. Actually, it's there where we see the, 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 the power of these idols and this, these demonic things and, and the emptiness of it really is in number three. Um, where it talks about idolatry in verses uh, 21 through 41. And we're well, going to end on how the pleasure of God really destroys them. Uh, it destroys our idols. So that's where we're going. So let me, let me just, just for two minutes, let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. I, I know if some of you were here, I said emphasis. But <laughs> my wife's laughing. She still makes fun of me to this day. It's the city thing. I don't know what else to tell you. Um, it's Ephesus. A um, little bit about Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was located. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to say that word that much, but uh, it's the capital of Asia Minor. You saw it in the picture. Um, if you remember back in chapter 16 of Acts, Paul was 
told not to go there by the Holy Spirit. Don't go down to Ephesus, but keep going west because he was going to get the call to Macedonia. Okay, it's located in the mouth of the Caister River. Its seaport is on the um, Aegean Sea. So it, it, it became a very well-known commerce center because all the goods that were traveling west from Rome would head east through that port. So it became a very important commerce uh, uh, place. Bill uh, Merritt, a pastor in process, preached from, from Ephesus a few uh, weeks ago, and it reminded us that the population was about 300,000, 400,000. Three times the population of Albany, half the population of Boston. So you kinda, it's a kind of a big place. It was well known for its pagan worship, its religious occult practices, um, sort of like Corinth. The pride of the city, though, although they had many pagan temples there, was Artemis or Diana uh, in, in the Roman world. It's the temple of Artemis or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world. She was the goddess of, of, of moon. She was the goddess of, of women. Patriots of women. She, she believed uh, to be the goddess of fertility. So therefore, there's a lot of cult prostitution going on there within the temples. Um, there were hundreds of priestesses that would be there. Um, she's like the divine mom, you know, overlooking this city that people would worship her and she would protect them and bless them. And her pop- popularity grew so much in, in this place, in this city, that she owned when I say that, the cult practices, owned lots of land. It actually became, in that day, a, a, a banking institution. It was so much money, so much income in that city that if you wanted a mortgage, you want to put your kids through college, you got to go to the Temple of Artemis to get some money. That, that's how big this temple was. And it drew thousands, thousands of people throughout the year to that city because of her Worship And now in chapter 19, Paul, before he had a red light, now he's got a green light to go into this cult city, into this pagan city, to bring the gospel. And the first thing we notice on, the third, on this third missionary trip is Paul encounters disciples who, I hope you can read that. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back. There's a lot of verses here. I put some of them up. But we're in Acts 19. Um, Paul goes into the city, and the first thing he you know, runs into is, like Apollos, disciples who only knew of the baptism of John. So he gets, he gets to Ephesus, and he runs into guys who only understood or only knew the baptism of John. Now, I want to take a, a five-minute bunny trail. I don't know if you would call it a bunny trail, but let, let's call it that. And I want to talk to you a little bit about hermeneutics. And you're thinking, herma who? Okay, I'm not trying to be impressive. I'm not. I'm not that smart. That will never work. But hermeneutics is very important because it is the art and science of interpreting Scripture. Okay, it's the art and science of interpreting Scripture. It focuses on discovering and determining the meaning of the narrative, the statement. What, what is the original author saying? What is the, the hearer and the original readers receiving? And then, once you have that in place, then you could transmit it to today. Often, people pull Scripture out, don't keep it in its context, and look to apply the passage, and that could be very, very, very dangerous. So good hermeneutics mean we need to ask questions, what's the context? What's the immediate context? What's the greater context? What, what, is it, what, is the, what does it say as a whole of Scripture? What is uh, the type of literature which you are studying? How does it fit into uh, the whole of redemptive history? And God, from Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise, and, and, and the fulfillment of that is Jesus. And we see all throughout the history that God 
moving redemptive history to the place where Christ returns. So where does it fit in all that matters when you're studying Scripture? For instance, if, if, if I'm reading the newspaper, an article of what's taking place in Albany, and I have a love letter that my wife wrote me before she went to work, I'd better read them differently, amen? I better not go, hmm, let's see, what facts is she trying to teach me? No. I'm gonna, so we do that all the time. We, look, we just do it naturally. We look, at, we look at writings, whether it's historical, whether it's um, Proverbs is a great classic example. Don't ever read Proverbs as a book of promises. It is not. The Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's wisdom literature. That's very important. Otherwise, you're pulling promises totally out of its context, and you're claiming stuff that God never meant to, for you to claim. So you've got you to gotta keep that stuff in mind when you're in interpreting passages of scripture. In Acts, we're reading historical narrative. God does not always tell us. The, the book of, of Acts, because it's narrative and it's historical, it does not always tell us what things mean. It may, a lot of times it tells us what's happening. It's Luke reporting this is what happened. Not necessarily what it means. It also may not be normative. In other words, it's not something that's normally done each and every day throughout the ages, it could be very, uh, what they call, limited because it's historical in nature. Now, there's good, it doesn't mean that God's not speaking. It does not mean that there's not some good theology in it. I'm simply saying you have to read good hermeneutics and interpret according to its genre, which is historical narratives. A lot of times what we do at good hermeneutics is we go to the epistles where it is didactic teaching. This is what it means. This is what happened, but this is what it means, okay? We also got to recognize the book of Acts is a transitional book. That's a fact. How it plays into your interpretation, we could discuss. The fact is, only time in the history of redemptive history in all of mankind did you have the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the promises that are pointing to Jesus, and the New Covenant, the New Testament, colliding in the same era, in the same Culture in the same time. This is the only time. Unless someone's here is 2,000 years old. I don't think so. But that has, to, that has to come into play in this. So we've got to ask questions. Why is this event recorded? What, what other biblical material is there? How does the context and all this fit with the rest of Scripture? Where are we in redemptive history? I say all that because some people take the book of Acts and they want to get all their theology, all their understanding of Scripture, all their understanding of God and the Holy Spirit, and conversion by what is happening in Acts and not necessarily from other places of Scripture that gives us the meaning of it. And they pull Acts, and you look straight to Acts, like this verse, and they say, this is what's supposed to happen, and we're time out. Luke is describing what happened. Let's talk about what it means, and let's pull in other sources. Let's let's look at it in its narrative and in its perspective. So I say all that, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not heard that there even is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized, 
only place in all of Scripture that people have a dual baptism, all right? Don't make a theology on it. It's only once. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 6. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. The Holy Spirit comes, descends on everybody on the laying of hands. If you look at the other baptisms, which we're going to talk about, some are laying hands, some aren't. So you can't just say that's exactly the way it's supposed to happen because in Scripture, the Holy Spirit comes in many different modes, especially in Acts, okay? Notice something interesting here. Number one, the text does not tell us who the disciples are. Were they Jewish? Were they Gentiles? Are they considered to be Old Testament Jewish disciples of John or Gentiles, non-Jews, disciples of John from Ephesus? It doesn't say. Luke doesn't tell us. Elsewhere, Luke will write, same author in John, excuse me, in Luke 5, that there are disciples of, the, of John the Baptist. They are called disciples. Not, not everybody is a disciple, a disciple of Jesus, right? You could be a disciple of, of some other rabbi. So that term is used interchangeably with people, but we are disciples of Christ, of course. But it doesn't say. But what we do know, look at the text. It tells us that these disciples have never heard of the Spirit. It's not that these disciples, regardless of who they are, have never heard of it in a sense we didn't know it existed. Because if they were Jewish, they understood Jewish custom. They certainly knew about the Spirit of God. And if they were Gentiles and they're following John the Baptist, they're baptized in John. John said, I will baptize you with water. Someone's coming greater than me. Straps of the sandals I can't, un- I shouldn't, not worthy to untie. And then when Jesus comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So they knew about the Spirit in a sense of cognitive. What they didn't know is that Jesus had sent forth the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about Pentecost. John preached the baptism, a preparatory rite, a preparatory baptism for the initial entering or pointing to Jesus, and it was a baptism, a preparatory baptism of repentance. Repent and look for the coming king. Okay? We don't do that today because he's already come. So they didn't know that. They were not aware of the death, burial, and resurrection, especially what happened in Pentecost. Jesus, excuse me, John proclaimed the one who's coming, and John's fulfillment had already come. And they were unaware of it. Verse 2, look at Paul's question. He said to them, did you, not, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said no. Now remember, this is before Twitter, Okay. You know, this is before newspapers. This is before real traveling around the world, instant stuff. They didn't know. He said, no. Did you receive the Spirit? No. Now, this text is used along with Acts 8 when the city of Samaria received the gospel as a proof test that you can be saved, you can be a Christian, but then you wait on the second blessing, this, this baptism of the Spirit. You're a Christian, and then you wait, and the second blessing, look here, the Spirit of God came upon them. That's not right. First of all, the Bible is crystal clear. Romans 8, 9, jot it down. If anyone, man, woman, child, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he or she does not belong to Jesus. If you don't have the spirit, you don't belong to him. Either you have the spirit, belong to Jesus, or you don't. Our text and Acts 8 says that the Holy Spirit was not yet given. It can't be a second blessing. It can't be a second, uh, a second endowment of the Spirit because the first one wasn't given yet. 
Now, I went to public school. I'm not the sharpest pencil, but two comes after one. No one had the Spirit. They have not received them, and therefore they're not regenerated. They're not truly converted. They were waiting, anticipating the coming of Christ, just like all the Old Testament saints. And again, unless you're 2,000 years old, you don't fit that category. Second, hear me. I want to hit this quickly and move on, but there are all kinds of confusion about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I preached through it in in Corinthians. It's online. You can look it up. This text in in Acts 19 tells us what happened, but Paul tells us what the meaning is, at least partially, in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. This is what he says. For just as the body is one, and many members, he's pointing to our bodies, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Many members, one body, one body of Christ. One, not five, not eight, not some here. One body of Christ. Verse 13 of chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jew or Greek, slave or free. Short, tall. Okay? We're all made to drink of the one spirit. Notice the word all. All baptized, all able to drink of the one spirit. All were brought into the body, no matter who you are. He doesn't say there are some have, the, some have it, some don't. There's the endowment, there isn't the endowment. He says all Christians have been baptized into one body, drink from one spirit, united with Christ. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. If you have an NIV, if you open up that verse and it says, if we were all baptized by one spirit, the word by is a bad translation of the preposition there. I'll tell you that right now. It's a, bad, it's a bad way. It really says the Holy Spirit baptized you with or in. That's the true preposition. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why very clearly. When John the Baptist came, he did not say the Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will baptize you. That's not what he said. He said when he comes, the Holy Spirit, Jesus will baptize you. He says, I have baptized you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes you as a Christian. In or with the Holy Spirit, right? The third member of the Trinity is the element and agent in which we are baptized. And the purpose, according to 1 Corinthians, is that we are incorporated into one body, the body of Christ. There's a vital union that, with Christ who gives us life. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, you think you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me, yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. So the Spirit, Jesus baptizes with the element of the Spirit. He baptizes into the body of Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. There's a vital union. There is life has been given. It's called regeneration. We become a Christian at the moment His Spirit comes into our heart. It emerges and infuses, that's what baptism means, with Christ. There is no other baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul writes to this church. Shortly after this event, listen to what he writes. Ephesians 1.13. In him, that's Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Remember what happened with John? Remember when I was there? Yep, listen, let me, let me, let me, let me tell you what this means. In him... You heard the word of truth, the gospel was preached, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, you turned from your sins, you trusted in Christ, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of the inheritance until we acquire possession, 
until we acquire full possession of it for his praise and glory, it says in 1 Corinthians. And some people, and, and, and lovely people, and sweet people, and, and, and sincere people say, but, but pastor, I remember that day. I remember that day. Maybe you spoke in tongues. I believe in the gift of tongues. Maybe that, you remember that day when the Holy Spirit, you say, I was baptized in the Spirit. I, I am not going to debate that. I, amen. What I will tell you is, one, either you were really religious before and you really didn't know Christ, and that day is when you finally repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, or, as the Bible talks about over and over again, it's the filling of the Spirit. The Bible talks about us being filled with the Spirit, that we need to continue, Ephesians 5, we need to continually be filled with the Spirit. There's one baptism, but multiple fillings. And that day, uh, Alistair Begg says, God gave you a kick in the pants and a hug and sent you on your way. One baptism, multiple fillings. And also what's happening here in Acts is a fulfillment. I think of what Jesus said. We've been tracking this since Acts 2. Wait, receive power. The Holy Spirit will come. You'll be baptized and you will what? You will go from Jerusalem. You'll receive power and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And so the book of Acts is tracing that circle of, of events from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the, and to the Gentiles to the utmost part of the world. And after this initial Pentecost in chapter 2, what you see is these three Pentecosts, these, 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 just like the one you see here, are similar to it. And it's always groups of people. The Spirit of God comes upon Paul, no, no, no tongue. I mean, the Spirit of God and their people are getting saved in the book of Acts. But when you see the four movements of the Holy Spirit and the baptism with the speaking in tongues and the, and the prophesying and in Acts 2 with the, the fire coming down, all that stuff, is each people group. Jerusalem for the Jews, chapter 2. You have Samaritans with Philip in Acts 8. The Gentiles, the God-fearers by Peter in Acts 10. And here are the disciples of John Baptist in Ephesus. Each one of them, I believe, is pointing back to the original day of Pentecost, saying each people group, Jews, you're not the only one. They don't, you don't have to be a Jew in order to be saved. And let me show you, each people group, the Jews, the, the Samaritans, which are half Jews and hated people, the Gentiles, and now John the Baptist's disciples, all experience something similar to the very initial experience in Acts 2. And I believe, in fact, I'll let Peter speak. Right? He's like, oh, that sounds great. That sounds like a great theory. Um, is it scriptural? I'll read it to you. After, this, after, the third, this, after, the first, after the third endowment of the Spirit upon the third people group, this is what Peter said. Acts chapter 11, verse 15, speaking to the Jewish people. He says to them, and he's recording what happened. He says, I began to speak to the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Same thing would happen when we were gathered in Jerusalem. Same thing. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, the Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who am I to stand in the way of God? And they glorify God, and this is what they said together. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. For everybody. All those who repent and trust in Christ. All those. In fact, Acts chapter 2, remember? You saw fire, you saw tongues, and, and it was clear to the Jewish people in that day that God had visited 
There was wind, there was the Ra, there was the, the Numa, the, the, the breath of God, reminded of Ezekiel 37, that the Spirit of God gave life to bones. There was the fire, do you remember? We talked about how fire comes down many times. When fire comes down, you better run. Because when God's fire comes down, he's not messing around, you may die. But here the fire comes down and rests on each, each of them. The presence of God, the, the, the Shekinah glory, the, the, the intimacy with God the creator has come on them. That's the, point of, that's, that's the point of Pentecost, to show clearly the presence and the glory. didn't cause death, it didn't smoke them on the spot, it rested on them. The intimacy and the presence of God rested on all of them, not some of them, all of them. When Luke connects this baptism with the first Pentecost, he's saying, they too have an encounter with God. The very presence of God has come down. And that's important because he gets to the next one here and we see the power of God. And we see how important it is to have a personal knowledge with God because look at the power. Verse 8. Paul entered a synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, it's another title for Christians, before the congregation, before the synagogue, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Teranus. It was a rented hall, like a community center, like a Knights of Columbus, verse 10. This continued for two years. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, that means the gospel, Jew and Greek, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. And notice, the evil spirits came out of them. Stop right there for a minute. God can heal. Catch that. God can heal. God is free. God can heal. God can do whatever God wants to do. Again, We have to ask the question. It's historical narrative. Is this normative? Is this something that we should be seeing regularly happening throughout church history? Like then, the same as now. Okay, give me some a little more hermeneutics today. Is it descriptive? That's what we gotta ask. Is it simply describing what happened? It's descriptive, or is it prescriptive? Descriptive, prescriptive. Prescriptive is Something we should do. Something we should copy. Okay, I'll give you the difference. It'll be really clear to you. Prescriptive, something you should do and copy. Husbands, what? Love your wives. All right, guys, come on. Okay, good. Husbands, love your wives. Prescriptive. Should we copy it, guys? Yes. The Bible says Judas hung himself. Prescriptive? No. Telling us what happened. Okay, now you see the importance of it. Paul doesn't say, okay, brothers, let's start a handkerchief ministry. You guys get them together, give it to the pastor, let him wipe his brow while he's sweating up here, and we're going to start a ministry of handkerchiefs. But it does say God heals. It does say in Hebrews 2 that God brought miraculous powers to authenticate the messenger, to authenticate and to, to um, uh, show forth or validate the message of the apostle, Hebrews 2.4. And just for the record, before we move on, Paul did not take his handkerchiefs and sell them on eBay. 
He was not asking the little old ladies to send in half of their earnings to sow a faith seed. I'm just saying. God can heal. God will do what he wants. Luke is trying to show us that when the power of God came down, people were being healed and evil spirits, it's important, were delivered. Verse 13. Then some of them, an itinerant Jewish exorcist, undertook to evoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. They said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. Who are you? Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jew and Greek, and fear fell upon them all. In the name of the Lord, Jesus was extolled here's the principle don't go to an exorcist unless you have an encounter with god a real personal encounter with god all while otherwise you're going to be looking silly running naked through the streets now I, I i think it's i think we need just for a moment talk about the tendency here in the west particularly to look at people to look at issues to look at problems in a very pigeonhole mentality Right? We, we kind of like, we divide people into sections. You got a thing going on in your spirit, you go see your priest, you go see your pastor, you go see whoever, and if something's wrong with your body, you go to the doctor. There's some truth to that, but I'm not going to write any script for you because I have no idea, okay? But we have to ask the question, how do they fit together? How do they fit together? How do we, how do we take an integrated approach to life? Right? We need to treat people as a whole. You can't just treat the body. You've got to treat the soul, the whole person. There are psychological, there are emotional, there are physiological issues. Yes. But where could we go where the Spirit of God is not present? Where could we go where the enemy is not roaring around like a roaring lion? Or prowling around like a roaring lion? All of us Christians need to submit to God and resist the devil. And he will flee from you. So when dealing with the issues of the mind and the emotions, we always must must consider the realm of the spirit. Otherwise, it'll be incomplete or at worst, we're going to be deceived. I mean, who wrote the book of Luke? A beloved physician, a medical doctor, not a voodoo guy, not a voodoo doctor. This was a medical doctor. And he's like, listen, demons are real. This trained doctor saying some people suffer for reasons that are not just physical. Jesus spoke about seeing Satan fall from heaven. He took his demons with him. You say, oh man, that is, that is you know, you're, you're going out there with that, Pastor. Really? Well, I believe what Jesus teaches. I believe what the scripture teaches. There are those who see demons under every single rock, and they're crazy. And there's some people who say G- Satan does not exist, and they're just out there. We've got to have a holistic approach is what I'm trying to say. These, verse 13... Because it was demonically oppressed, they called in the Ghostbusters. I mean, you can't help but see the Ghostbusters here, right? These traveling Jewish exorcists come with their, you know, yeah, got, got their stuff fired up. Obviously, it's for financial gain. They're making money. They got a bag of tricks. They invoke the name of Jesus over the one who had evil spirit. Things didn't go very well, right? You can't use Jesus as a formula. 
as an incantation, as a, as a magical pill. Exorcism was common. Actually, I read somewhere this week that even among Jewish people, they thought they had this in with God because they were the God of the Hebrews. And, and we see exactly what's happening here. It's the same people, the Jewish people at that time, rejecting Jesus the Messiah, but they're quick to call upon the name of Jesus so they can make money and they can evoke and, and dismiss evil spirits. Now, just one thing I want to point out here. A lot of people think being spiritual is cool. Oh, yeah, I'm spiritual. Oh, yeah, people meet me. Oh, you're a pastor? Yeah, I'm spiritual. Oh, I'm a, good. There are a lot of spirits out there. Uh, where you send your mail and who you call upon matters. Um, so, you know, we try to talk through that. Being spiritual, just ask these seven brothers, didn't really get them anywhere. Okay? All, all they know is they tried to invoke something they didn't know, someone they didn't know, no gospel that they receive, and they're trying to use kind of name-dropping. Paul knows them. Let's, let's try this guy out. In the name of Jesus... Next thing you know, right hand, left hook, out the door they run, streaking across the neighborhood. So if you go into the spiritual world and and you're engaging evil spirits that hate God, that hate God's people, don't use Jesus like a magic trick, okay? Because it's not going to work. You're going to be bleeding and running for cover and looking for like an urgent care somewhere like that's open right now. So, but before we leave this, let's not judge. Let's relate a little bit, okay? I'm going to push back a little bit. Maybe if you grew up like me, you may understand this. And if you don't, you think I'm crazy. It's true. When we invoke the name of Jesus, or we do things like place a Bible in a particular room, the back seat of the car, bobblehead Jesus on the dashboard. <laughs> or you wear a certain saint necklace because you're a law enforcement or um, you, you know, you, 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 you want to be safe. Or, true story, you bury one of the saints in the ground outside your house because you're trying to sell it. Or you ask Jesus for help, for his help and power, primarily for your own personal gain while not enjoying him, glorifying him, and obeying him. It's magic. No different. The point is there's nothing, there's nothing really automatic or, or, or mechanical about the name of Jesus coming out of your box, of your, of, your wind, you know, of your voice box, as if somehow that's a magical potion. It's not the way it works. The efficacy of Jesus' name lies only in understanding who he is, what he came to do. It's the gospel which is powerful. When you believe and personally embrace the gospel of Jesus in your life, it cleanses you, it empowers you, it transforms you. Jesus has, there's no second-hand power. It's only first-hand power, appropriated by faith through a personal relationship, that baptism, that, that presence, the reality of me and Christ. Christ to me, there's a vital union that has taken place. Verse 17, it became known to everybody. Jew and Greek and fear fell upon them all. The name of the Jesus was extolled, was magnified. Report circus, you know, the report was going on, was circulating. Those guys were running around naked, I'm sure, brought some reports. Paul's message was exercising real demons. This guy, you know, so this is good. The omnipotent power of God and of Christ and of the gospel was seen. It was magnified. It was revered. It was feared. But there was more problems coming. Verses 21 through 41 tell us about a riot because of idolatry. We talk a lot about idolatry here because it's a real problem in your life and in my life. 
It's a real problem, and the Scripture speaks a lot about idolatry. Our text teaches us that idols are real, the reality of idols, but also teaches us the power to break idolatry in our lives. Let me just give you a synopsis. I'm not going to go over this whole, this whole verses. Let me just give you a synopsis of the rest of the passage, verse 21 and following. First, we have the Apostle Paul. Remember, he's teaching and preaching and declaring the gospel. Next, in our text, you see Demetrius, verse 24. He's a silversmith. So he's not happy. He's getting very wealthy over Demetrius, this god of Demetrius, this Artemis, excuse me, this god of, of, of the fertility. He's, he's making a ton of money. So he's not happy because the gospel's going out, okay? So you have, you have Paul preaching, you have Demetrius, verse 24, getting money, making idols. Verse 28, you have this angry mob because the, the town and the city is getting all stirred up because of what's going on. They drag some brothers, they throw them in the, uh, into a, a theater and they trap them in verse 28. Verse 33, Alexander comes. He's a Jew. This is all going on. There's a mob scene going on. He doesn't help at all, verse 33. And then 35, the town clerk steps in and says, listen, if we don't knock it off, we're causing a riot over, over this. You know what? The Roman, the Roman soldier's going to come in, and the Roman soldier's going to stamp us out. So we better knock it off. All this, listen, Paul preaching, everyone getting angry, the mob, the 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 the. the the Alexander, all, all this mob frenzy is all happening because the gospel had taken root in that culture. People were coming to faith and things were changing. Idols were being destroyed. Things began to change and people's wealth began to decrease. That'll get you mad, amen? Somebody in our community group this week was telling me of a situation of her daughter, was working and living on mission with Jesus, and people were, were coming to faith in the office, and even unbelievers were noticing the atmosphere was changing. It was noticeable to unbelievers. When the gospel takes root in the lives of his people, things change because people are different. We use money differently. We meet a community, our worship. Things are different. Verse 25 says they gathered around. They were not happy, like a big union meeting. Everybody who made money all got together, and they were so mad that things began to change. Demetrius steps up and says this in verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we are wealthy. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul was persuaded, has persuaded, and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands are not God's. No message from Paul. Demetrius summarized the message, meaning that Paul has been going around from city to city preaching, what? Your gods, your idols, made with your hands, are not really gods at all. That was, that was the ministry of Paul, pointing to, pressing against, confronting idols. Idolatry was huge. In the preaching, Acts 17, we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, actually last before we uh, took a break, Paul goes into what? The Areopagus and preaches against idolatry. And he stands up and he says, don't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. Idolatry is a real issue. You have to face, I have to face. In fact, if we're going to be true gospel teachers and preaching and declaring and sharing and loving people, pointing them to Jesus, we have to be people who are quick to point out idols. And let, let, me, let me say two things. Number one, American Western 
individualistic culture. It's all about me. It's my wealth. It's, it's, it's my, what I do with my career. It's my decision and all the other my that goes with it. I will worship the one I want to worship. I will worship my God that I will decide who that is. Okay? Watch it. Don't tell me how to do it. At the very heart of that, if you're here today saying, don't tell me about God, I'll find my own God. I'll do my own thing. I'll get my own imagination. I'll understand my own God the way I want to worship him. That's the heart of idolatry. Okay, you didn't build it. Still your own imagination. You still built it in your own thoughts, your own philosophy, your own understanding. That's the problem. The God you create with your own imagination or inventiveness is exactly idolatry. You made him, you conjured up it. Number two, idolatry is not only bowing down to wood statues. Maybe you're new here, you haven't heard me talk about idolatry. But it's placing anything, something or anything, what is good or bad, that's more important, more central, more significant. Your, 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 your desired hope, your identity, your value, your worth, and, and, and your meaning outside of God. Idol is something that we create, that we have, have a treasured and inflated to function as only God can function and only God can do, I should say. And whatever it is, it becomes your functional savior. It becomes your hope. It becomes your source of personhood. It justifies who you are as a person, if I have this. And when someone tries to take it from you, like the mob in our story, it becomes anger and violence. Alcoholics, drug addiction, gambling, all the other addictions that we talk about try to intercede and watch the rage and the violence. Verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. Idolatry is about confusion, not peace. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging them, Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So there was, you may not got physical, but there's emotional and verbal violence. Here's the problem, though. Okay, here's the problem. Now, track with me. When we see people addicted to bad things, when they are, they are caught up running the streets, drugs, heroin, whatever, when they're addicted to bad things, you could say, wow, they are really addicted. They're really controlled by it. It's really a worship disorder. They really have that thing that they cling to to help them get through life, to help them get through uh, situations and to live life. They're clinging to that. It's easy to see that. It's not so easy to see, though. It's not so easy to see that idols can be good things. Idols can be good things, not just bad things. Idols can be noble, right Things that you would say amen to, when they become the ultimate thing, they become an idol thing, okay? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welch uh, minister, said this, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend, and I might add anything I feel that I cannot live without, an idol is anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and arouses and attracts much of my time and attention, both joy and anger, energy and my money. If I only have that, I'll be somebody. If I only lose that, 
I'll be finished. Whatever it is becomes more important than God to you, becomes a greater source of joy, a greater source of happiness, a greater source of identity is your idol. The problem, again, is it's easy to see the idols when they're controlling and hurting people. It's a lot harder to see when they are good things or noble things that turn into ultimate things. It's almost easier, if I could say this, it's almost easier in Rome, Ephesus, when you go up to the temple, you see the idol. It's right there. It's in your face. Than it is to look in our own hearts. Turning things into ultimate things become an idol thing like family, careers, approval, success, moral rightness, even children. When we need our parents' approval or we need a certain career or we need our kids to turn out a certain way so that we feel like we're somebody we matter we're a worthwhile person it is then that we, we that has become more significant to our joy our identity our meaning than god himself and it becomes an idle thing i can't move on without giving you at least one quote from dr keller an idol is ever you look at and say in your hearts if i have that i'll feel my life is meaning If I have that, I'll have value. If I have that, I feel significant and secure. Anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity is an idol. Functional Savior. How do we know? Let me just give you a couple things here before we close. Let me ask you a few things. You say, nah, I don't know if that's true. All right, let's see. One, what are you most afraid of? Could be idol pointers, okay? Where you do it in your own heart, there's quietness in your own soul, okay? What are you most afraid of? Could that be an idol? What are you most afraid of? People won't like you? Truly see who you are? Truly see who you really are? What are you most passionate about? What do you care about the most? Just look at your money, look at your talents, look at the way you spend your time and treasures. Jesus said, for your treasures, your heart will be also. What is the major motivation in your life? Where do you run for comfort? What gets you fired up? Very angry or very joyful? What is the everything else, even good things, that have to be set aside so that one particular thing I'm going to have because I need it? They could be idol pointers. And you know when, when something becomes an idol, you know when something becomes an idol because when you lose it or it's been threatened to be taken from you, there's just not sadness, but disintegration. There's just not hurt. There is a loss of life. When good things become ultimate things and become threatened, and you see that here in our text. Not just sadness, but disintegration. And that's what happens with this mob. Their money, their hopes, and their dreams, the things that they identified as a people were in jeopardy, and they got angry, and they kept shouting, Great is Artemis! Great is Artemis. They didn't want to hear it. They were just shouting because of the fear of their idols being taken from them. So what is it that destroys idols? The only way to destroy idols, let me tell you, okay, just let me wrap it up and give you this. To see and to behold a greater pleasure. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents. Fear fell upon them and the name of the Lord was what? extolled, magnified. Also, many of those who were now believers came, what they do? Confessing, divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of everyone. 
and they counted the value of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver, several millions of dollars in today's economy. Listen, when the gospel was preached, when the Lord Jesus was magnified, when he was exalted, when he was treasured above all earthly treasures, idols were torn down, idols were seen as less valuable, and their lives, and they brought their stuff, and they thought nothing of burning their earthly treasures. Paul said, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Thomas Chalmers, 18th century Scottish mathematician pastor, wrote a sermon you can find online. You email me, I'll send it to you. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In it, argues, in it, he argues that the only way to dispose of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. This is what he writes. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart. A couple of minutes left, bear with me. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of and which, if wrested away without the substitution of another, something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. The heart must have something to cling to and never by its own voluntary consent Will it denude or strip itself of all its attachments that there shall not be one remaining object that can draw it or solicit it? If the throne which is placed there must be an occupier, must have an occupier, and the tyrant that now reigns has occupied it wrongly, occupied it wrongly, he may not leave a bosom which would rather detain him than be left in desolation. In other words, the heart is drawn we're in an affection, the longing and the clinging of something. John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. We worship something. We love something. We, we cling to something. Listen, until a new, more beautiful, treasurable, believable love comes along, we will inevitably cling to something. Let me finish what he writes. He writes, it is in the gospel. Do we so behold God as that we may love him? It is there and only there where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners. Where our desire after him is not chilled into apathy by the barrier of human guilt. This through the appointed mediator, Jesus. It is the bringing of this better hope where we draw nigh to God. It is when we stand dismantled of the terrors which bring us as an offended lawgiver and when we are enabled by faith to see, listen, when we are enabled by faith to see his glory, 2 Corinthians, in the face of Jesus Christ and to hear his beseeching voice, goodwill to men and entreat the return of all with a full pardon of our sins and a gracious acceptance. It is then that a love paramount to the love of the world and at length expulsive of it, in other words, it gets rid of it, arises in the regeneration of one's heart. It is when released from the spirit of bondage with which love cannot dwell 
and when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart, brought under the mastery of one great predominant affection, is delivered from the tyranny of its former desire and in the only way in which deliverance is made possible. End quote. How can we see and behold the greatest treasure, the pleasure of God? Look at verse 28. When they heard this, the gospel was threatening them. They were enraged. They were crying out, Great is Artemis! The city was filled with confusion. They were rushed into the theater. They dragged out Gaius and Articus, Macedonians. But look at verse 30. Paul said, I got to go in. I got to go in. There's a mob. They're, they're, they're attacking. And the disciples said, no, 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 Paul. Don't go in. Verse 30. Disciples withheld Paul for entering into his own destruction. They stopped him from getting beat up and possible death. But there was one who had come, and his name is Jesus, who the same mob cried out to him, crucify him. Crucify him. And all the powers of the principalities of darkness standing behind their shouts were sneering. And the power of God is seen. And even though all the forces of hell and demoniac were cheering his brutal beating, the Lord Jesus Christ whipped to death, he rescued us from bowing his head and entering into that mob. Paul was told, don't go. Jesus was told, you go. All the evil principalities in darkness, Jesus bowed his head and entered that storm for you and I and defeated the enemy Sin, death, and hell. Colossians 2. God forgave us of our sins, canceled the written record against us, nailing it to the cross, and then he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Listen, the apostle Paul was able to escape the demonical oppression and the power of darkness, but the gospel is that Jesus did not escape darkness, but enter into it so that you you and I can be free. You and I can be free. While Jesus hung on the cross, darkness shrouded the cross for three hours and and sin and evil and and wickedness and brokenness fell upon him as he was judged for our sins. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as bad as it was to be brutally beaten doesn't compare to the horror of the evil storm, the angry mob of all demonic forces, all our sin and shame he entered into as he poured out his life for us. And when Jesus took our evil on himself, the Father forsook him, turned his face away. He did not cease to be God, but he bowed his head and entered the storm, lost the intimacy with the Father for a short season, not for his evil, but for ours. In the gospel, Jesus pays the penalty. There's always a cost, folks. There's always a cost of our idolatry. He comes and he brings us and the deeper we look at the gospel, the deeper we see all that Christ had endured, the deeper we see all the filth, folly, and shame, the deeper we see all the force of darkness that Jesus went through for the storm on the cross, buried, rose victorious over sin, death, and hell, the greater we see that the greater affection we have for him and the greater the idols will be crashed, trashed, and put aside. The explosive power of another. The answer is Jesus. The gospel shows our hearts the real glory and beauty of God. And only then, when we are drawn from other beauties as our eyes gaze and see the beauty of Christ, that we will be able to 
overcome the power of darkness, the power of idols, by replacing it with the beauty, glory, majesty, sheer grace of Jesus Christ. The cost, the pleasure of God is greater than the pleasure of idols. The expulsive power of the gospel. Idols cannot be simply removed. They must be replaced. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's three responses I want you to think about. Number one, are you playing religion? Or is your moral effort and all your good deeds, you think God now has to bless you because of all the things that you've done? That's religion. That's magic. I work, I work hard, I pray, I tithe, I go to church, I do all these things. God, you have to love me and accept me and now forgive me. No, that's magic. The gospel is you already, Lord Jesus, because of the cross, you love, forgive, and accept me because of your moral record, Jesus, not mine. Maybe the Spirit of God hasn't come because you're playing religion. You need to repent of your sins, trust in Jesus. The Bible said he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Number two, are you dismissing the reality of evil? Do you need to start submitting to God? There's things in your life you're running from in. You're living in rebellion. You know it. And Satan is having a field day with you. You need to submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. God will draw near to you. Number three, what idol in your life, even good things, do you need to start smashing? Not loving things less, loving God more. Not loving things less, but loving God more. My supreme hope, my ultimate reality, the, the, the center of my life, my identity, my worth, my value is in Christ alone. All that Jesus did in my place for my sins, dying, rising for me, calls me his own, calls me his child. I'm resting in that. Not what you think, not what they think, not my career, not my money, not my, my clothes, not my looks, not my status, but in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this narrative today as we see your, your desire to, to abide with us, to dwell in us by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. God, we pray for those who don't know you, have not received the gift of new birth and regeneration. Lord, we pray that you would send forth your Spirit, that you would, you would grant them faith and repentance and trust that you would fill them with your spirit even now. Father, we pray for those who have need of repentance. They're, they're playing with fire. And they know it. The enemy's having one up on them. We pray, God, you would grant them repentance and obedience to you. Not to be loved, but because they are. Not to be forgiven because they are. Not to be accepted because they are all that Christ has done. Let them walk in that freedom. The freedom to obey to walk in holiness. And finally, Lord, we pray, whatever it is in our life as we respond, that we're truly clinging to. And Lord, nothing's off, nothing's off the table. Maybe it's a wife, maybe it's a husband, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's my money, whatever it is, even good things, my business, my whatever it is. Lord, we lay it at your feet. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that can give us what our heart needs. And that is you and your love for us in the gospel.